Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is Disruptors at Work, an integrated care podcast, where all of the topics will be with subject matter experts, practitioners and providers, leaders and managers who are implementing integrated health projects all over the world. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. Hello and welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Disruptors at Work podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. I am I am the CEO of Cummings Graduate Institute. And joining me today is our guest, Dr. Heather Jelanik. She is a doctor of behavioral health, and she is currently the director of Medicaid Innovation for Health Current in here in Arizona. And Heather has been uh, invited to join me today on the podcast to share a little bit more about her recent culminating project. She recently graduated from Cummings Graduate Institute with her Doctor of Behavioral Health. And um, her culminating project is uh, really interesting. There's a lot of great data that she has to discuss today. And so I've invited her to share her culminating project defense slides and presentation, and also talk a little bit about how she hopes to apply the work that she learned in the DBH program and through her culminating project to her current position and work at the advocacy level in the state of Arizona. So welcome, Heather. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. I am really excited to hear uh, your culminating project um, outcomes again, because I really, uh, you know, we worked really closely throughout your culminating project, and I am a a huge proponent of ACEs, um, which is a huge part of your CP work. So you are welcome to go ahead and begin talking about your project whenever you're ready. Great. Um, Thank you for inviting me. I'm very passionate about adverse childhood experiences and what we know and what we don't know and um, how what we don't know is actually impacting the healthcare delivery system and the amount of money that we're spending every year on chronic conditions. When I first was working on my culminating project, I was working as the managing director of Bright Health Plan of Arizona. Um, It is an insurance company that sells um, insurance products through Obamacare, so individual family plans on the exchange, in addition to Medicare Advantage plans. And one of the key focuses of an insurance company is to make sure that your patients are getting the care that they need um, while also trying to reduce costs and incentivize providers to engage in evidence-based practices, make sure that their patients are getting all the preventative services that they need, but also looking at innovative ways to um, improve outcomes in the long term. Mm-hmm. I have a financial responsibility for the overall operation of the health plan, so I was really interested in trying to address um, some key components of long-term spend. Mm-hmm. My current role at um, Health Current, Health Current is a health information exchange, so we're the culminating party that takes all patient data and aggregates it and puts it into a master uh, patient file and then allows other participating providers to access information about their patients. Um, When were they in the hospital? What kind of immunizations did they have? Um, What kind of medications were they uh, they on? One of the new programs is really looking at the social determinants of health. Mm 
-hmm. and incentivizing access, as it's called, as Medicaid is called here in Arizona, um, incentivizing those providers who are addressing the social determinants of health to exchange, to exchange data with other healthcare providers. And um, I really think that as part of addressing social determinants of health, we need to be looking at adverse childhood experiences and how those factors really play into the overall health of an individual, the overall health outcomes of the individual, um, as well as the long-term medical spend. Absolutely. So, um, my research was really uh, started kind of at, at looking at really what trauma-informed care is. And for those of your listeners who don't know, mm -hmm. trauma-informed care is really about changing our interaction with patients that we treat and more from a what happened to you, tell me what your story is from a what did you do uh, mm -hmm experiences most people have when they go into a healthcare practitioner's office. Yeah. Um, but we're also trying to look at what type of childhood trauma or adverse childhood experiences did a particular patient have, mm -hmm. um, how stress factors into long-term outcomes, um, how do you protect your child and yourself from the, the stress? How do you detect and screen for um, childhood trauma? And then really from a, a health insurance perspective, what's the cost of adverse childhood experiences? Mm -hmm. um, this, my research really found that the, the costs are astounding um, mm -hmm. and that really I think the health insurance industry has its um, eyes focused a little bit off target when right. you're looking at control and costs. Right. And then also what a health plan could do when they have that information, if they know what type of experience, tra traumatic experience someone um, had as a child. Yeah. So, so really quickly for, for our listeners too, and, and certainly for our CGI students and faculty members, Heather really um, represents a very unique lens um, and, and, you know, perspective on the healthcare system because um, most of us come from a very clinical perspective and really have had only training related to, you know, being a, being a clinician, helping individuals and, and families, but Heather really has the, the 80,000 foot view perspective and lens. And so she's really looking at ACEs in a different way um, and definitely in a way that's, that's valuable. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for you to share more. Great. Well, we, when we really start to look at what trauma, specifically childhood trauma does to, you know, someone under the age of 18, right? So it could be from birth to um, 18 years of age. There, there's significant clinical implications on what the stress response system does to the body. So the brain tells the kidneys that there's some kind of stress going on. The kidneys will re release um, adrenaline and cortisol. And those two chemicals kind of flood the entire body. They impact the lungs, they impact the heart, the liver, um, they'll impact the digestive tract, and they'll also impact um, blood pressure. And while a normal amount of stress is good, it helps us kind of move through um, our development stages. It, it helps us learn how to tie our shoes. It helps us learn how to prepare for tests and job anxiety. But when a, a child specifically, or even an, an, an adult, 
is exposed for prolonged periods of time to these two chemicals that are natural, uh, naturally produced in our body, it does start to have negative impacts um, on the developing systems. So long-term express, uh, long-term exposure to adrenaline and cortisol will lead to increased levels of depression, increased levels of PTSD, substance abuse, cancer, heart disease, autoimmune disease, uh, gastrointestinal disease. Um, in infants, you'll see something that's called failure to thrive, where the baby just won't gain weight and won't move through the, the normal developmental milestones. Um, folks can suffer from severe headaches, sleep disturbances, they can engage in, in risky behaviors, they can develop asthma and self-harm. So if you think about a child whose body is constantly being flooded with these two, um, these two chemicals and the damage that will happen to any one of those um, systems and create these long-term chronic medical conditions, it's really easy to understand um, the clinical impact, a clinical impact that childhood trauma has on long-term health outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when you start to look at the data, um, and there's a, some interesting studies. One was done by um, the CDC and Kaiser Foundation, where it looked at a population of patients who um, they had access to great health care through Kaiser. Um, these were folks who were um, you know, educated, generally speaking. They didn't necessarily suffer from you know, socioeconomic issues, um, but they were questioned as to what kind of childhood trauma did they experience? And what the researchers found was that um, about 61.5% of adults have at least one average childhood experience. Um, and two average childhood experiences adds considerable risk to someone's long-term health outcomes. But what's more surprising is that almost 25% of adults have had three or more average childhood experiences. And by average childhood experiences, we're talking about neglect, abuse, um, mental illness in the the home, domestic violence in the home, um, a loss of a parent, um, food uh, concern. So it, do they live in a food desert? Is there a lot of poverty? Is it a high crime area? So all of these um, experiences are considered to be adverse childhood experiences. Um, but the, some of the fascinating um, information that is very hard to dispute, actually, I don't think I found a single article that disputed any of it, mm-hmm. was that the number of average childhood experiences that a person has is directly tied to the risk factor associated with chronic medical conditions. Right. So if you have four or more ACEs, your risk for developing diabetes is 1.6 times higher than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, Your risk factor for developing cancer and heart disease is twice as as high. we're developing um, chronic lung disease, you're talking about a risk factor of four. So you're four times more likely to develop chronic lung disease than somebody who doesn't have um, four or more adverse childhood experiences. 
And if you just take one of those chronic conditions out of the equation, we'll just say diabetes, for example, the long-term cost of treating diabetes in calendar year 2020 was $237 billion. Mm -hmm. So we're spending all of this money trying to um, make sure that people with diabetes take their medication, that they're getting their eyes examined, that they're getting their feet checked out, that they're losing weight. But what we're not doing is paying attention to the childhood trauma that set the stage for the development of diabetes long-term. So we're treating the, the symptoms rather than actually treating the disease or the disorder. And you know, Heather, one of the things that I loved so much about your project was the clever title. Oh, my title, Adverse Child Experiences, How Do We Flatten the Medical Cost Curve? Because we were in the midst of the pandemic when yep. you started your project. And you know, when you first sent me your first draft um, of your literature review, I um, was just beyond thrilled at the cleverness Everything we were hearing at that time was about flattening the curve of the spread of COVID-19. And so it was all of this in the media. And, you know, you cleverly pointed out that we could very easily flatten the cost curve, the cost of care nationally by simply applying the evidence that we've known for decades about ACEs. Exactly. And, you know, I think in our field, um, there's a lot of what are the catchphrases um, for trauma-informed care referred to as a catchphrase um, Mm -hmm. before. And, you know, it is. Adverse childhood experiences is a catchphrase right now, although it is getting a lot of attention. But when you start using terminology that is um, common in the medical establishment, it's easier to connect, um, a, you know, a mental health or behavioral health issue back into the um, the health delivery system. Yeah, so I think that was one of the reasons why I, I chose that flattening the uh, flattening the curve because everybody was paying attention to trying to flatten some kind of curve. Yes, it's exposure or um, mm-hmm. admission or the cost or hospitalizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the timing was absolutely spot on. Um, yeah. Connect that back to um, you know childhood trauma, especially as it related to the the response. Um, well, I, I would say the secondary pandemic of of mental health and substance abuse, as well as accidental overdoses that we saw during the pandemic. And I think, you know, one of the things that people often leave out when they think about trauma-informed care is the mental health aspect of it. So yes, we see an increase in depression and anxiety and and trauma-related symptoms, right? Stress-related trauma, acute stress reaction. It could be up, up to and including PTSD, but I don't think that most health insurance companies are doing anything with the research that says, as you mentioned, all we need to do really is switch our focus to prevention and we can control the cost dramatically simply by educating patients about their risks and treating the mental health and trauma. Absolutely. And providing the, the interact or the intervention right at the appropriate time, um, especially in this era of the pandemic um, and COVID and everything else that's going to be coming, um, Mm -hmm. making sure that folks, um, 
understand that what they're experiencing is normal, mm -hmm. um, but then also providing them the resources and the tools and the intervention and the services to, um, to address their needs at the time of the need. Mm -hmm. um, we see so many problems, so many long-term problems when these issues aren't addressed timely. And, and that's what, you know, one of the outcomes of the ACE study was, is, you know, if you intervene earlier, um, if you provide support, if you provide services, if you provide education, um, you can drastically change the course of that person's life by potentially um, either A, eliminating or reducing um, the risk of developing a chronic medical condition, or if it's already at the state of play, educating the patient on the need for their medications or whatever it happens to be, but putting it as a perspective of what they survived um, and how their body reacted and how they have control over you know, what their health outcomes are going to be going forward. So it's about making sure that the patient has medical care um, to include all services. I, I drives me crazy. The insurance industry still does it. Our industry still does it um, quite a bit of mental health and medical health. Mm -hmm. We need to eliminate the, um, the division. It is simply yes. the medical treatment for an individual that happens to be holistic and incorporates every um, part of the individual that might be suffering. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really I really appreciate the perspective that you brought to that as as a person who's been working in the healthcare industry for so long because oftentimes what you see is a perspective of well we have to limit services we have to you know cut costs by eliminating services or you know putting caps on the number of visits or or the number of um, just being able to if you're already in the hospital you need an, an additional CT scan or x-ray nope nope sorry that's not approved or an additional couple of days stay that could you know eventually mean the person's outcomes are better over time but we limit that and instead looking at it from a perspective of what can we heal within the person exactly the need for those services uh, and when I you know looked at the the data um, it just said you know some of the Costs of, AIDS, of ACEs in various states. Um, you know, the, it went anywhere from uh, $100 billion for medical and mental health spend all the way up to $748 billion annually. And that includes, you know, it's not just the economic, the basic economics of how much it costs to treat somebody with diabetes. Uh, it includes the, the toll on the family. Um, it includes work product. So if, you know, if an adult is suffering from um, diabetes that can be directly linked back to childhood trauma, you know, they're going to have higher rates of um, not showing up to work or, or higher rates of absenteeism and earlier death rates, which means that it has a financial impact to the economy and to the, the employers who rely on um, you know workers to do their jobs. Absolutely. So taking the prevention approach, um, which I think we've done really well in a number of other um, conditions, you know, breast cancer and colon cancer, and making sure the kids get their well visits and their immunizations, you know, we need to have that same type of approach when we're looking at childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. Because the data is there. I mean, we're spending 
Um, $83.5 billion on lost productivity, another $25 billion just on healthcare, uh, $4.5 billion on special education, $4.5 billion on just child welfare agencies, and then, you know, another $4 billion in the criminal justice system. Um, and all of those, a lot of the, that expense could be eliminated simply by screening people earlier, screening children, screening families, and inter, interceding and intervening. Mm-hmm. Uh, once we reduce the overall cost of care, health insurance premiums become lower. Um, you know, you maybe instead of paying $250 a month, you're paying $50 a month because the, the cost of health care isn't as expensive. Mm-hmm. And a health insurance company is able then to take those savings that they're seeing and reinvest into additional programs, um, maybe offer additional services like groceries being delivered to someone's home or um, uh, dental coverage for children, adults, as well as the geriatric population. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to invest those savings back into the delivery system. But I think the one that really would drive healthcare providers um, to begin train to begin screening, training themselves and intervening is that we would be able to stop asking providers to take a reduction in their rates. Mm-hmm having been a, a, an insurance executive for a very long time, um, that was a fine balance that I always had. I needed to pay a provider for the level of service that they provided, but also weigh in the level of education, the complexity of the case, and set a reasonable rate without overpaying for a service. Right. And as healthcare costs go up, and I'm trying to keep my premiums at a stable level so folks can afford them, that requires me to go back to a provider to say, I need you to take a 5% or 10% or 40% reduction in your rate. Mm-hmm. That all is not sustainable. Right. So with turning our focus back to prevention and to screening and finding the ways to reduce the long-term costs and then take those savings and even incentivizing providers to do screening. I mean, that was one of the things that I tried in my culminating project was to say, if I incentivize a physician $200 um, just to sit through ACEs Aware Training, which is a program that's offered by, um, uh, in conjunction with the state of California Medi-Cal program, just for you know two hours of their time, I pay them $200 just to take the training and I was unable to get a single provider out of, I want to say it was like 400, close to 400 providers um, that I solicited. Mm-hmm. None of them were willing to take the time um, to sit down and 230, sorry, 230 providers mm-hmm. uh, were invited to take the training and I would pay them $200 to take the training and give their office lunch for the day. Right those types of programs are pretty successful Mm -hmm. Um, but for this program I wasn't able to get any healthcare professionals willing to take training Um, so I actually worked with some of the executives of um, the bigger bigger clinics that I had targeted and some interesting things kind of came out you know number one is the um, NCQA Mm -hmm. does not have a quality measure specifically around screening phrases. 
Mm-hmm. There's no heat as measured. It's not going to get tied back to a starage rating. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no value-based contracts today that incentivize providers to actually screen for childhood trauma. So that was part number one that was very interesting. And the one of the physicians that I talked to said, well, if you really want to incentivize providers to take this training and educate themselves, then make it part of your value-based contract. Well, in order to make it part of a value-based contract, you need to first go to CMS, um, so the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and NCQA, and petition them or propose to them the creation of a brand new fetus measure. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is simply, did a patient, did, did the provider um, take the training or did the provider actually screen a certain percentage of their patients mm-hmm. um, and then record that information in an electronic medical record that can then be shared with other providers as a standard data set. Right. The interesting thing about that is you don't need to know specifically what the patient's trauma history is. All you really need to know is their score. Mm-hmm. So is it a four, is it a five, is it a six, was it a one? in order to get some really reliable data mm-hmm. and understand what the risk factors are. And then looking at their history of, you know, do they have diabetes? Do they have asthma? Do they have uh, COPD, cancer, um, autoimmune diseases? And, you know, having that information, that score allows us to, um, again, intervene, develop interventions, connect patients with the services that they need. But, you know, more importantly, hope hopefully stopping the cycle. Once yeah. you identifying it, stopping the cycle so that the next generation of folks um, are faced with the same same sort of challenges. Right. Now it's so interesting to me, Heather, because you know when when you had you know done all of the research and you had proposed this intervention, you know, you and I had lots of conversations about who to reach out to in terms of you know who to choose. Um, you know, from the provider network and you made really, you know, careful selections that were based on, you know, the, the minimal amount of upward approval that would be needed for each of these agencies. And you also made a, a really careful, um, exploration of diversity within the providers that you chose to make sure that it was representative of a, of a really good, population, you know, the true population of Arizona's, um, you know, consumers and residents. And, and we really, you know, I think we're operating on the assumption that if offered this incentive from the health plan, who is literally paying them to deliver services to the health plan's beneficiaries, that it would be an, a no-brainer. Yeah. And so, like you said, you know, the, the lunch and learn strategy of we'll pay you, you know, to come to the training or to take this training and we'll bring in lunch for your team has been so successful in so many different other strategies. And I think you, what you may have discovered is that we're at a new level of competition for time on the part of, of the providers. Um, and, you know, so... I know from the conversations that we had um, and for the listener, when you, when you do a culminating project at Cummings Graduate Institute, 
as a student, you work very independently on the research itself and on the writing. Um, but then you meet with your advisor throughout the process. And, and it's a great opportunity to have conversations about what you're finding or not finding. Um, and, and to explore both through, you know, the experiences that um, your advisor and that you as a student both bring, you know, from your, from your experience as a healthcare professional. And, you know, for the combined experience, I think you and I have about 50 years or more combined experience in the healthcare profession that we were bringing to the table, you know, for your project. And what, what ended up happening was something that was different than what we anticipated. And I think that that really speaks strongly to the importance of trying new things and, and trying innovations and, and being willing to say, we don't know if it's going to work, but you know, we're, we're operating on pretty strong uh, medical evidence, science and research, as well as pretty strong, you know, professional experiences here. So we're going to take our best stab at this and then being willing to say, if it doesn't work, then we're still going to learn a lot. Exactly. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I remember the two of us sitting down when I, after I'd had my trauma-informed care class with Dr. Fortis, and the light bulb had gone on. Um, when I was reading about ACEs through Dr. Nadine um, Burke Harris's book, The Deepest Well. And I'm like, wait a minute. All of this, all of these expenses, all of this money, it's, it's all... We can, we can intercede, we can intervene. We, as an insurance company, um, as an industry, we mm -hmm. have the ability to make change. And I think one of my initial concepts was, um, you know, paying, start to pay providers right away to, um, to screen. And I, I met with a colleague of mine who is a pulmonologist and he said, no, you need to start with training. You know, you have to give these healthcare providers, whether it's physicians or behavioral health providers, you have to give them the training mm -hmm. and the, um, the exposure before you ask them to do this. So you and I went back to the, kind of the drawing board and it was like, hey, neither one of us had thought about that. It was like, oh my gosh, this ACEs Aware program is so successful. We just go right into it. Mm -hmm. um, and while it's widely successful in California, it's not here. So really needing to make sure that we were really starting at the basics of just simply educating the, um, the market and then trying to find a healthcare champion who is, you know, well-known in the state, well-known in, in their field um, to really help elevate this issue to a higher level in addition to what the health insurance companies can do. So I think if we have, you know, the, the Arizona Osteopathic Association or the Arizona um, Counselors Association or, you know, pick any one of those professional associations and, and pair them up with an insurance company, number one, to get the education out, to um, get the word out that there are others in, in their field that are paying attention to this, then to be able to incentivize it are great first steps. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, when it really gets down to it, we need either a state or federal um, kickstart, mm -hmm. uh, a heat measure. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I think that was one of the big values. And we've talked about this, of course, but your, your research really ferreted out the complexity of how do we even begin this in the state of Arizona? 
because, you know, we had, we have looked at the ACEs aware, you know, under Dr. Nadine Burke Harris's um, leadership in, in the state of California, they have great trainings that are available. You mentioned the model of training providers first, then operationalizing and supporting implementation of screening. And then a public education campaign, which is what the state of California is doing really well. And, you know, at last, the last email that I received, they have trained, I think over 17,000 providers in the state of California. um, And they've already kicked off the screening and implementation, implementation of screening, as well as their public education campaigns. And that's well and good for California, but also they have Dr. Nadine Burke Harris as their state surgeon general, which is, you know, a new government um, governor appointed position for the state that Arizona doesn't have. And so since your project, and, and this is something that, you know, those who are listening should know, as the advisor, I learn as much about the subject matter as you do as, as the student sometimes. And one of the things that I started to learn in my interactions with the Arizona Department of Health Services was more about how our state's Department of Health functions in relationship with, but not overseeing the state Medicaid, Medicare delivery system. They are different than other states. So that's something to just kind of put in your back pocket, you know, as, as you think about how to address this as the clinician or, you know, CEO or advocate within your own state. And, you know, Heather, I remember you and I going, gosh, this is, this is hard that, you know, we have, okay, let's write down our questions and, and you take these and see if you can find answers to these and I'll take these and see if I can find answers to these and then we'll report back at our next week meeting. Yeah, we did that for weeks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but it, it, it's so true. And I know you sit on so many, yeah, I'm going to call them task force because in, in the insurance industry, that's what they're called. You know, mm-hmm. these, these task force that are really focused on a particular problem and either how to have a change, how to develop a workflow or a process or a procedure that's really going to move the needle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know about quality reporting and value-based contracting and you know the Medicare Shared Savings Program and HEDIS measures and you know and putting all of that information together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, we yeah, have really to um, continue to, to fight and to advocate, but most importantly, I think even uh, Dr. Finike is interested in helping us advocate and push the business case um, and the ROI for CMS and NCQA to actually develop that HEDIS measure. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I shared with you recently that um, that I learned was that uh, twenty the 2020 MOM organization and um, I'm a part of the policy and advocacy cohort um, for 2021 from this organization, which means that for a 12-month period, I'm going to be part of a, a small group of, of chosen professionals from a variety of states who are working on pushing policy change as it relates to maternal mental health in their state. So for the state of Arizona, 
I'm one of three individuals that consistently work across these different task force forces um, on policy and advocacy. And, and, and that too is a very diffuse and nebulous, you know, kind of, of work to do. But there is a formula that that seems to work really well. And the 2020 Mom Organization has put forth a proposal for um, maternal ACEs at the very least uh, to be screened. Now it's part of a long list of goals for the 2020 Mom Organization. But one of the things that they did push through that was accepted, and, and you'll see this if you go to the HEDIS website, is the, the screening for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders or for maternal mental health during pregnancy and postpartum is now a HEDIS measure Yay. because of the work of that policy and advocacy group. So screening wasn't even happening. It wasn't even a, a, a HEDIS measure. And, and as you mentioned, and as you found in your culminating project, if it's not a HEDIS measure, then it's not a priority exactly. for healthcare providers or for healthcare payers. Yeah, insurance companies are ranked. Um, paid providers are paid. Mm -hmm. They stop meeting those measures. So if it's not in, um, if it's not a requirement, they're not going to do it in their daily work function because there's so many other things that have to have to happen. So many competing priorities. Yeah. So it's make it measurable and make it a financial incentive. Mm -hmm. um, tie it to bonuses. Tie it to rate reductions. You can. There's a whole host of ways that you can use um, a HEDIS measure to incentivize and change behavior. Right. Whether it's positive as an incentive or a bonus, or negative um, as a, a star rating. Mm -hmm. So it is at least from my perspective, being um, you know spending so much time in, in the health insurance industry, you're, you're you make or break based off your HEDIS scores um, and your stars. Right. And you know whether you can grow your business is directly tied to those those two outcomes. So it's, right. it's money where um, your mouth is, so to speak. It it does, and you know the interesting thing as a healthcare consumer, because all of all of us, every citizen is a healthcare consumer, um, and I and I think what what is too complex maybe for you know the the non healthcare provider. Um, healthcare consumer to grasp is is how complex this is. No one knows in the public what a HEDIS measure is or what a star rating is. Um, and you know, I, I I don't even think a lot of providers know what a HEDIS measure is because oftentimes it falls to the bean counters, as we call them. You know, the the finance individuals who are calculating the algorithms for you know. It's very similar to a car insurance company, right? How how many of these, you know, uh, these defects, or or I, I should say, a car manufacturing company, you know, how many of these defects uh, will we be able to allow to happen before we, you know, need to pay it out? So they're calculating the ROI, and unfortunately, in healthcare, the formula is really upside down because it's, it's consistently been over time looking at how do we intervene really well in a crisis and you know try to keep people alive instead of looking at the lifespan of that individual that leads to the crisis to begin with. So what we're really talking about is looking upstream. And in order to do that, as it turns out, you have to measure what you treasure, right? And if we treasure it, it's gotta be a measurement. <laughs> I, was, I was talking to one of my colleagues, um, 
it helped courage right after I started because you know I finished the program and then literally started this job just uh, mm -hmm. two weeks later. Mm -hmm. um, and he is a former uh, Access Medicaid employee who is looking at these types of programs, like how do you incentivize this stuff? And he was inquiring about my background, and I said, "Well, you know, my my master's um, in clinical psychology was actually from a school that was really Rogerian based, uh, mm -hmm. you know, humanistic, uh, unconditional positive regard." And then when I went into my actual internship, the place that I did my internship was very much cognitive behavioral. Yeah, we had this heavy focus on humanistic, and then. Right, the thoughts we entertain it impacts the way we feel, which impacts our behavior. Mm -hmm. um, but then, the way my mind has always worked was, to me, it's more than just the behavior. Mm -hmm. I need to understand what caused the behavior, or the thought pattern, or the disease state. Mm -hmm. And when you really look at ACEs, it is getting back to, at least from my perspective, that psychoanalytical perspective of what caused the problem. Right, right. And we know that, that diabetes is directly related to adverse childhood experiences. We know that um, autoimmune diseases are directly linked. We know that early death rates are directly linked. So, you know, going back to that um, approach of saying we need to understand where the disruption in the, in the person happened. Right. And only do that through screening. Yeah. Well, I'm imagining at some point in the hopefully near future, at point of care, a provider would be able to, you know, screen for ACEs. And then based on the ACE score, let's say it's a four, as you mentioned before, which gives you ultimately the risk factor increases that you mentioned earlier. It would be nice to be able to plug that in and have a dashboard that says, okay, we need to work harder at preventing things like diabetes and, and you know, CVD or CHD because we know that your risk factor is higher. Individuals may say, well, I don't have heart disease in my family. And normally that is what we are asked exactly. the first time we see a provider. Do you have any of these? you know, ha, ha, in your, you know, immediate family, do you have any of these risk factors? So if people are answering no right down the line, which until the past month, I was, you know, fortunate enough to say nothing really but stroke. But then my father had an emergency cardiac bypass surgery. And so now I know that, you know, after talking with his cardiologist and, and with his cardiac surgeon that I'm at higher risk, but I also know that my ACE score indicates that I'm at higher risk. Exactly. And so that to me gives me a higher risk than they are able to calculate because I know what I know. <laughs> so wouldn't it be nice at point of care if I'm meeting you for the first time as my patient and I'm your primary care physician that I know what your risk is so that we can actively work on the lifestyle factors and, you know, preventative factors, nutrition, physical activity, even things like supplements, vitamin, vitamin D and fish oil and ashwagandha, you know, scientific evidence that indicates that these kinds of supplements can lower your risk. In addition to the lifestyle management things. And I want to make sure when I see you again for your annual physical, that we're checking on these things, Absolutely. it would be a game changer in medicine. Yeah, without doubt. It would absolutely be a game. And I would think that healthcare professionals would demand to have that information if they really knew what, what was out there. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, and I think that's been, you know, kind of the, the responsibility, the, the burden of responsibility has been on the individual provider for too long, you know, so, and, and it has also been on whether or not, um, you know, the provider happens to have been in a training or, or happens to have been exposed to the Kaiser Permanente CDC study. And, and so those are, those are important. So, well, Heather, I know that you've got to move on to your next meeting. So I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to share this critically important project and, and for students and, and for CGI faculty members, I, I know they would love to um, know more about your work. So um, if it's okay with you, I can, um, you know, encourage them to reach out to you to learn more. Absolutely. I love it. I love the topic. I'm passionate about the topic and I love to share the information because it never ceases to amaze me the, the number of jaws that drop Yeah. when mm-hmm. I actually share the information. So absolutely, right. all questions welcome. Well, your work is important and I, and I know without a doubt that it will make a difference. It certainly has already made a difference in my ability to speak clearly to you know, points of advocacy in, in our state. And I know it'll help others as well. So again, thank you so much for your passion and leadership in this area. Thank you. All right, we'll talk soon.